So as Malcolm said, you know, what is the downside? Either way, we win. But if if the if the deniers are right, we still win. But if if we're right and the scientists are right about this climate crisis, and we don't listen to them, then we all lose the ultimate game, and that's life. And if that doesn't get you fired up, then I don't know what will. Welcome everyone to the Relators Podcast, where conversations are raw, life is the ultimate game, and leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that was Craig Leeson, who joins us alongside Malcolm Wood, who are both the filmmakers, directors, and producers of the recent mind-blowing documentary titled The Last Glaciers. On this episode today, we dive into climate deniers. Who are they? How do we approach them? A journey to the last glaciers and how to win the ultimate game of life. This podcast was recorded back in the summer of 2019. And as we are all aware of what is going on in Australia right now, it reminded us that we still haven't released this inspiring interview with Craig, an Australian native. Australia, we hear you. We are with you and you are in our thoughts. Folks, if you'd like to help out, you can donate to the Australian Red Cross, giveit.com, G-I-V-I-T.com, or to the Salvation Army Australia. And for you lucky listeners, at the end of this episode, I will be reading off The Last Glacier's story written in our most recent winter edition for your ears only. So let's get to it. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for your uninterrupted episode. Let's give it up for the real Craig Leeson and Malcolm Wood. All right, we're, folks, we're live here on Facebook. Uh, I'm Kevin Harris, the host of the Realist Podcast, and today we are with uh, Craig Leeson and Malcolm Wood, uh, filmmaker, director, and producers of documentaries, and most recently, their latest film, uh, The Last Glaciers. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having us. Uh, and Craig, we'll start with you. Um, you've been producing documentaries for a lifetime now. I think you probably started younger than I am. Um, what kind of drew you into this environmental activism space? And, and what, is there a specific moment that you can let our audience know about? No specific moment. I grew up on a beautiful island called Tasmania uh, on a beach. Uh, I could swim before I could walk and the ocean was something that drew me to it. As a kid, I used to spend most of my time in the rock pools studying the tiny ecosystems of how all these animals live together in this small little community, which was their own world. And and so it became a fascination for me. Um, My parents' house was turned into an animal hospital. The neighbors used to bring animals, injured animals from around the, the neighborhood and the beach. Uh, and we'd kind of nurse them back to health and send them on their way. So the environment's always been very big and forefront, uh, to me, particularly since the, the town that I grew up in Burnie was an industrial town in this oasis of environmental beauty of Tasmania. And we had a pulp mill, uh, we had a, a, a paint pigment plant, we had a slaughterhouse, we had an acid plant, and that affected the water there a great deal, and particularly the health of the kids at the surf club. And so uh, as I became a journalist, I found power in the written word, and I started investigating the problems that those industries were causing and and found for the first time that dioxins and other terrible chemicals were going into the ocean there and causing cancers. And and that's why Bernie had the highest incidence of cancer at that than any city in Australia. And so uh, we were able to bring attention to that. And 10 years later, those industries were gone. The the sea was blue again. And uh, we found that, uh, well, I personally found that there was power in messaging and uh, and doing proper investigation and helping people understand the environment is crucial to the way that they live. So uh, for me, it's always been something I've always been uh, very concerned about, and that is keeping a healthy environment for future generations. Incredible, Craig. And, and for those who uh, hadn't seen Craig's um, other feature films, they're very captivating, very motivating. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's something um, that as a consumer, as a person, you know, a young uh, man growing up in this generation, it's something that you just don't uh, experience um, on a day-to-day basis. So it's people like Craig and Malcolm who are going out in the world and really 
um, you know, uh, finding direct evidence of how, you know, plastics and, and pollution and, and all these substances are, are affecting our ecosystems. Uh, so Craig, Malcolm, thank you for that. And Malcolm, we got Malcolm on the other end right now. He's, he's in France. Um, oh, and people listening to this right now, we've got Craig, uh, he's in Italy right now and on Zoom. We've got Malcolm in France and, and Malcolm, uh, you know, tell us how you got to where you are right now and what's your relationship with Craig and, and kind of why do you do what you do? Well, Craig, Craig and me go back a, a long way. We're, we're, we're good friends. Um, and we met in Hong Kong. Um, I'm, uh, I've, got a, I've got several businesses. And um, recently, Craig and I have teamed up um, to work on a few environmental documentaries. And, and, and the project that we have right now is called The Last Glacier. Um, the idea actually came about sitting um, together on a holiday that we took um, in the French Alps, and it was the driest um, December on record. And we were sitting there, and we were—I we, was trying to teach Craig how to do ski touring, uh, some mountaineering, and we just couldn't do the activity. Um, we had some cameras with us, and we decided that it would be a really good idea uh, to go and film the local weather guys um, to work out what was going on. Um, and that was three years ago, um, and it's been uh, it's been a really good three-year journey of working together. Um, it's been great to be able to scare Craig um, for a three-year period. Uh, we've had some pretty cool adventures uh, in, in, in this production, um, and uh, we've still got a few more left. So looking forward to the, to, to the rest of the filming. And Malcolm, you mentioned you're an entrepreneur. I feel like you, you both are entrepreneurs in, in, in its own way. Um, and you guys are really taking on a big challenge. There's no doubt about it. Any entrepreneur that's gone through the process um, has told me, you know, what doesn't get talked about are the struggles um, and, and uh, just the overall um, uh, path to success is, is a difficult one. Um, so, uh, Malcolm, we'll stick with you. What, what's really been the most challenging process in these three years since you met Craig and in terms of getting your message out there? Besides his friendship, um, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, but I, I guess the most challenging thing is, um, is climate change is one of those issues that is so widespread and it's such a complicated beast and there's 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 so much debate um in the subject that it's extremely difficult um for people to get their heads around the facts and there's always something that they're hearing or seeing in the media and it and, and it's been a political issue as well mm. um and initially craig and myself looked um in a sort of traditional way to fund the film um and the initial conversations that we had were extremely difficult because you know everyone was passionate about helping everyone wanted to get involved in the film but when it got up to the board levels and the board approvals of some of these larger companies that would generally support environmental documentaries they didn't want to touch it because the, the, the they didn't want to have people look at them and say well you know actually you know every company can get scrutinized um for being a contributor towards climate change. Um, and at that point, Craig and myself decided that we would self-fund the project in the initial stages. Um, and the reason we made that decision is we wanted to, um, well, we wanted to address the problem as quickly as we, as we could, because we, you know, we, we were seeing things speeding up, people talking about it becoming a climate emergency, uh, something that needed to be fixed. Currently, you know, it's, it's, it's not a problem anymore for our kids. It's, it's our problem. It's, it's a problem we need to fix today. Um, and, and we didn't want to get slowed down by the bureaucracy and, and, and the fundraising. And so we cracked on. Um, and, and we got 60% of the film done with that mindset so that we had the content, we had the facts. And then we could go to market and show people, look, this is the message. Um, the mission statement for the film is that we want to eradicate any doubt that climate change is unreal. Um, it is a political tool. There is a lot of mixed messages out there, but it is unanimous with all scientists from around the world that we are in a climate emergency. It's not about change any, anymore. It's, 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 it's a state of emergency. 
So Craig, speaking of, you know, Malcolm was just mentioning, you know, it's, it's uh, unanimous. Uh, what's some of the evidence that you found, uh, you, you were mentioning the Alps uh, on the current last glaciers uh, in, in the Placid Ocean that's, that's really just uh, breathtaking. Uh, I mean, uh, scare me here. Like, well, what, what should I be worried about? Yeah, uh, well, you should be worried about your future. And if you have children, uh, their future, because it's it's not only uncertain right now, it's actually questionable. We flew with NASA uh, over Antarctica as NASA was measuring ice movement there. And John Sontag, the head of the ice bridge operation that monitors movement in the South Pole and, and across the Antarctic uh, continent, was giving us figures on how much ice is melting every single moment. And it was such a big figure. I couldn't imagine. And I said to him, listen, I'm a visual guy. So go, can you work out for me visually, how much water is that? How much ice are we losing? And he came back to us and he said, we're losing the size ice, the size of the Titanic every 10 seconds. Now, when you think about the, that kind of mass that's going never to be seen of again, uh, you start to understand why these guys are getting concerned. I've been interviewing scientists for 25 years in documentaries, all sorts of documentaries all over the planet. Scientists are very factually based individuals. There's no emotion when you interview them. They tell you the facts. They tell you the research that presents the facts. They tell you how we got there. And they give an idea of what they think the future will look like. This is the first documentary where I've interviewed scientists where they are getting emotional uh, where they're, they're, they're tearing up. Uh, people like John Sontag saying that he doesn't think that we as a species will be around in 40 years' time if we don't change what we're doing now. Uh, this is alarming because you never hear scientists speak with that kind of emotion before. Hmm. When we are in Peru, we were working with scientists in the Cordillera Blanca range, and the, the, the situation there is so bleak. The government has set up a special scientific group to study how quickly ice is uh, being lost there. And what they're finding is that uh, since the 1990s, the Cordillera Blanca range, Peru has lost 50% of its glaciers, gone, never to be seen again. Now, countries like Peru, and particularly countries uh, where, that, that, uh, where the Andes are very present, rely on these glaciers for water. They rely on it for hydration, for cropping, for livestock, and these glaciers have been. And the one issue that is bad for any country, and the Pentagon highlighted this in 2003 to the United States administration at the time, the worst enemy of the United States is climate change and mass migration because that's one uh, topic, one issue that's very difficult to deal with. And we're already starting to see migration happen. Uh, immigrants coming not only from war-torn areas, but also areas where we're seeing uh, uh, people being displaced by things like climate change, by extreme weather events. And uh, that's what's of major concern. And we're seeing this happen now, not as isolated events, but almost weekly occurrences. Uh, Craig, I got an old Montana saying that my grandpa told me yesterday. He said, talk is cheap but you need money to buy whiskey. So mm. the message there being, you know, we can talk about this, um, but what are some of the solutions that you have found, uh, you and Malcolm have both found throughout this, uh, you know, six year journey or yeah, well, the, lifetime? The, the number one, yeah, the number one solution is we've got to stop producing CO2. We've got to stop burning uh, carbon based products. Fossil fuels uh, have to end. They're causing the greatest amount of change in the atmospheric gases that we've seen in the last 130 years. And, and this is why we call the film The Last Glaciers, because it's, it's not just about glaciers, but the basic thread of the narrative arc is the science behind this ice core project that was started by the uh, French scientists. And what they've been able to find, and I saw this in a presentation for the first time three years ago uh, by the head of the Ice Core Project, Jerome Chapelles, and it was the first time any scientist had been able to present to me the issue of climate change 
in a very easy to understand way. Most people find the, mm. the scientific jargon behind it, the explanation, very difficult to understand. Right. And what they were finding was that by measuring ice in glaciers, uh, deep down in glaciers all around the world, they've been able to tell how the atmosphere has changed over the past 800,000 years up until the present day because this ice contains the, the gases, the atmosphere that was present at those points in time. And what they've found is that there's been this natural oscillation of hot and cold as the Earth has wobbled around its elliptical orbit. It's gone further away, it's got colder, it's come closer, it's got warmer. But this natural oscillation has changed since the industrial age where it's suddenly gone on a hockey stick off the graph. And what we're seeing is four times the amount of methane, twice the amount of carbon dioxide. And that's why these scientists know that uh, human intervention is causing the climate change we're seeing now. And that's why, the, why they understand that climate change uh, is, is a fact. They're able to measure it and they're able to measure it very accurately. And so we're able to tell very simply through that process why climate change is real, the facts behind it, um, and now the way that we need to find the solutions, as you talk about, and that, of course, is to stop burning, stop creating these products that uh, cause the raising of these uh, greenhouse gases. And uh, the best way to do that is to stop chopping down forests, stop burning fossil fuels. These are very easy ways. There are more complicated methods, such as sequestering carbon into the earth, turning carbon into rocks, and these are other uh, tools of technology that we're now looking at. But the primary way is to stop burning fossil fuels and is to grow more forests. Yeah, and look, I, yeah, keep going. Yeah. I just wanted to jump in there. Um, um, unfortunately, it's not about not reaching a tipping point. Um, we're, we're kind of almost past that point. Um, the damage has been done. So as Craig said, 50% of the second highest mountain ranges, glaciers, have disappeared and they're not coming back. The, the reality is we probably will continue to see those glacial losses and people will suffer the consequences today of climate change. So we're, 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 we're past points of, of no return. And, and that's, and you know, one of your questions is what's the most shocking thing that you've, you've learned? Well, within 50 years, the second highest mountain range on the planet will have no ice for some of the model predictions that the, that, the, that the scientists are predicting. If the, if the highest mountain range in the world loses all of its ice, 1.8 billion people will not have fresh water. So almost a third of the world's population will suffer from the loss of glaciers. And, and people ask us all the time, why did you call it the last glaciers? Water is a fundamental need for survival. And without the glaciers, a third of the world's population will suffer. Now, we don't know how much of this is going to happen. We don't know um, if there's going to be a rescue in between now and then. But, but the answer to your question about what's the solution, the solution is driving awareness, getting everyone behind this idea and insisting on policy change around the world. And Craig... Um, Craig's film, A Plastic Ocean, is a perfect example of this being successful with plastic pollution. Um, and I was lucky enough to be on, on that team with Craig. And we've, we've seen a lot of success with that being an educational piece in schools. It was translated into 30 different uh, languages, uh, screened in over 60 different countries. And what we feel with driving awareness this time around is that we need to be driving the awareness to the children. The children need to be aware of the situation. And we can already see from the, the, the demonstrations, the Greta Thornburgs, that this is having an effect. And we feel that this is probably, um, you know, one of the quickest ways to get the planet to wake up. And, and Malcolm, I think you hit a great point right on the head and you said people will suffer. I mean, ultimately, that's what it comes down to. Right. Uh, you know, saving, saving lives, extending lives um, and, and protecting families. Uh, another stat that 
scares me is like by 2050, 150 million refugees um, will be displaced from their homes because of uh, uh, climate changes. And and obviously, you know, um, for someone who interviews uh, a lot of climate activists and, and uh, people taking on the world's most pressing issues um, every week, um, it's alarming. And it's, and it's a lot, too. Um, um, and I think, you know, we need to drive awareness not only to. Uh, the next generation, but to the other side. And I, what's been fascinating for me is how many critics uh, who have their BS radars on all the time and uh, are like kind of Craig, what you said, uh, uh, you're speaking about um, that hockey stick since post-industrial revolution. Um, and I think the misconception that uh, we have uh, as climate um, you know, believers is uh, climate change believers is uh, we assume the other side doesn't believe the climate is changing when in fact climate deniers do believe the climate is changing they just don't believe it uh, has any uh, reflection with uh, the human in, uh, footprint so therefore humans aren't causing that that's what kind of yeah let, believe in. let me just qualify some points you've made there um climate change isn't about believing in, in, in something. I mean, you believe in God or a gods. You believe in the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus. This is fact. Climate change is fact. If you fly in an aircraft, if you take your children to a hospital uh, to be treated by a doctor, if you take medicine for a cold, then it means that you understand the facts behind science because science has created those products based on uh, knowledge and research. So if you, if you, drive a car uh, or an SUV uh, and you say you don't believe in climate change, then what you're demonstrating is absolute ignorance. And or you're what we understand to be someone who believes so much in a free market that you don't want someone to tell you that you can't drive a polluting four-wheel drive, you can't fly in an aircraft, uh, or that you cannot personally be responsible for something like climate change. And this is something that we looked at in depth because given that we all use the tools of science, that we've all, we've all benefited from what science has provided us, the understanding behind physics, uh, it, for example, then there should be no deniers, but there are. So we, we flew to the UK uh, four weeks ago and interviewed a psychologist who specialises in understanding uh, why deniers say that they don't believe in climate change. And what he has found in his research is that the small minority of people who don't believe in climate change are people who believe in a free market. They are generally people who don't want to be told that they can't use a, a, a four-wheel drive and, and guzzle gas, that they can't fly in. Um, and to substantiate that belief, then they have to say that they don't believe in climate change. Um, but as we say, it's not a belief. If it's fact, science, uh, science, uh, climate change is based on scientific research and fact. So uh, if you choose to say that you don't believe in it, it means that you choose uh, not to understand or to willfully ignore the facts behind the science that tell us about climate change. And, and I'll just say, uh, because, you know, we're, we're both in the same business in the sense where we're trying to get this message out there. Right. Um, and I'm just doing this research from, I wouldn't say it's a small majority. In fact, we have more climate denier comments on our, uh, posts on everything else than any other group of people, which is actually really alarming. Uh, it's really scary too, because, you know, people are in their own bubble. And I think that's correct. However, you know, you know, you said unanimous scientists, there are some scientists out there that do believe the climate isn't changing. And I think those are the scientists, just really quick, if the, the scientists that are, are talking to these people, um, you know, there, there was a 30 year gap where the, the Earth's temperature uh, did go down post industrial, um, uh, post industrial revolution. Um, you know, uh, they don't believe in the greenhouse effect as the temperature lowers as, as you go up higher in the atmosphere. Uh, ocean currents uh, could be changed by multiple different ways. I don't think, I think it's all BS in my opinion. I don't think it has any scientific, um, well, I wouldn't say it doesn't have any scientifics because they're from scientists and I'm not. Um, but it, it's, it's pretty clear and evident to me, uh, from someone who's been in nature and can see, Craig, your initial point with the ecosystems, kind of what's doing in terms of the, 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 the chain. Um, but I will say, I think that's the most important group of uh, people that we need to connect with and understanding them, I think is a, a really big piece of that. Yeah. 
Well, that, that's what we're trying to do with, with, the, with the film. And, and listen, just because the minority is loud doesn't mean they're the majority. You, we tend to find that, uh, that uh, climate change deniers are very vocal, and that's because many of them are actually uh, they're working for lobby groups. Uh, there is a financial reason for political leaders and many of our um, older CEOs that are in control of companies that rely on fossil fuels to continue those businesses uh, because they're very successful and they don't want to see change. And you can understand that. These are old white men who have dominated corporate society and the political systems for a long time. And to change requires a lot of energy that they just don't have. And that's why I'm always very optimistic about things like single-use plastic and and the climate change issue is because it's a generational thing. These guys will move on and we'll get young entrepreneurs who come through with greater knowledge and more respect for science. And I think ultimately, you know, as young entrepreneurs come on and, and do what entrepreneurs do, and that's find other ways of producing new environmental products and understanding the environment a lot better and building that into their products, then we see change very quickly. So I don't think that because we hear a lot from these people that come on and troll our Facebook pages and our Instagram pages and social media that uh, they're necessarily correct. And what we've found is that 90% of scientists globally have researched uh, and present fact that shows the climate is changing at the hand of man. And the, the 3% of scientific research papers that have said otherwise have actually been discredited by many institutions that have found that uh, their methodology has been incorrect, uh, that the, uh, the subset of uh, uh, their uh, focus of their research has been incorrect. And so what we're finding is that it is, in fact, a minority and a very small part of the scientific community that believes otherwise, yet for some reason we tend to allow them to have uh, an incredibly large voice. But that's the society we live in. Uh, people have the right to speak their mind. It's so great that you guys have been able to reach out to these scientists. Those are always people I try to get on the show, but they're difficult to find sometimes. Have you ever considered reaching out to a scientist that maybe has an imposing view? Yeah, 100%. I mean, it, I, I, think, I think it's important um, when you're making documentaries that you always show both sides of the argument. Mm. Um, what we find is a lot of the deniers are unwilling to give documentary interviews um, because, I, I mean, I, I don't know why, but sure. the, 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 the reason it's been, it's been quite challenging. You know, Craig always says um, this when we're going around um, after we meet people that don't believe in climate change. He's like, well, I mean, what's the downside? You know, everyone's saying that we're having an impact on, on, on our climate. The consequence of the impact is, is, is that there are going to be issues globally. You know, people are going to be short of water. We're going to go into famine. We're going to suffer strongest storms and bigger hurricanes. You know, what downside do you have to, 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 to going against all of this? Um, and, and the reality is th these things are happening right now and they're happening faster than we can control. Um, and, I, and, you know, I think it's a scary statistic that it's almost 50% of the American population still think it's a hoax. Um, and and that, that? That's, that's, that scares me more than anything else. Yeah. The, the, as Malcolm said, though, you know, the, sure, don't believe in climate change, but the fact is pollution kills more than 2 million people in China alone every year. That's air pollution. Um, it kills millions of people all over the world, and that's a result of burning coal and fossil fuels. So, sure, don't believe in climate change, but let's work towards renewable energy systems that don't create air pollution and water pollution and let's clean up our environment so these life support systems we need continue to operate so that we can survive as a species so as malcolm said you know what is the downside either way we win but if if the if the deniers are right we still win but if if we're right and the scientists are right about this climate crisis and we don't listen to them then we all lose the ultimate game and that's life so there is no downside uh, from understanding the way we affect the climate. 
Totally. I mean, whether you believe in it or not, it, the climate is changing 100%. Both, both sides agree on that. What are we going to do to, to make this change? And I think your films are doing a great, great effort in that in terms of solutions, not only just the, the empirical or not empirical evidence, the, the physical evidence uh, of that. So, uh, Craig, you were just mentioning um, uh, a little bit about renewable energies. Um, it, it, you know, is have you come to the belief that there is a trade-off um, between uh, switching to renewable energies and uh, versus our economic development? There's always a trade-off, and the and the, the most immediate trade-off is you know people are demanding we switch right away, right now, which we should. But the fact is, if we do that, our economic system will collapse. So we need to make sure that the transition happens happens over time, so that businesses are allowed to. Uh, to make those changes so that they don't collapse, they don't suffer financial hardship. Um, And so it is important to understand the needs of business and the needs of those who rely on energy uh, that doesn't come from renewable sources, and still that's most of us um, in many parts of the world. Uh, In places like Germany and Europe where I am at the moment, renewable systems are actually uh, providing most of the electricity and most of the power and energy that we need. Uh, But I live in Hong Kong on the footsteps of China, And China's energy needs are so great uh, that it's searching for energy now in countries all around the world. Like it can't provide its own energy. Uh, So it's going to places like Africa and Europe and Australia uh, to get coal and fuel and and also renewable energy. I mean, China uh, is at the forefront of wind turbine energy. I've seen this. I've been to the Gobi Desert where they have thousands of uh, hundreds of kilometres and thousands of uh, wind turbines that they've developed and they're now exporting that technology around the world because they understand that they need energy um, that doesn't pollute the environment. China has for many years been the manufacturing centre of the world and because of that, and it's unfair for the rest of the world to criticise China uh, for the way it pollutes, but, you know, because we've all taken our iPhones and our computers and everything from manufacturing centres in China and, unfortunately, it's polluted the soil to such a degree that many areas in southern China, for example, uh, farmers are not allowed to grow crops because the soil is so toxic. So we have to move to renewable energy. Uh, we don't have a choice. We can't continue to burn fossil fuels. Uh, the pollution to the environment is collapsing life support systems. Uh, we know that for a fact. So as we do that, we need to prepare study for the changes in the economic and financial paradigms that must take place uh, for us to provide uh, life on planet Earth for, for the next generations. Yeah, wouldn't it be great if we could all just get along and, and figure out a, a solution? And it's, it's a tough time. Well, it's a difficult decision, yeah. you know? Most of us are doing that. I mean, there, you know, there are many, most countries were outside of the US, for example, are signatories to the, to the Paris Agreement. Um, you are seeing, for example, the European Union announced four, six months ago that uh, they were banning single-use plastics by 2021. Um, so this is happening. And uh, I, I talk to people all over the world. I talk to uh, executives of corporations, CEOs, um, I spoke to the American Chamber of Commerce in Kuala Lumpur just two weeks ago. And the one thing that I tell them is that uh, if you, your business uh, is not placing significance on the environment within the production of your products, if you don't have sustainability development goals within your business infrastructure, you won't have a business in the future because the kids of today who are the clients and consumers of tomorrow do not want to be part of despoiling the planet. And we're already seeing a significant shift towards products that demonstrate from the companies and corporations that make them significant sustainability development goals in the production of those products, that that's going to continue uh, at a very strong rate and it is continuing. And we've got young entrepreneurs coming up who have new ideas and who want to make money and see the potential to make money by being environmentally conscious. And there is a way to be profitable in that area. And these guys are coming on and they're going to take over. So I'm very optimistic about the future. And uh, what I'm saying to these guys is you must change. Otherwise, you will be dinosaurs. And I know I've been playing a crick this entire interview, but I am excited about the future too. And I believe that that's going to be, you know, the, the straw that breaks the camel back is, is these businesses that are coming up, especially certified B corporations, which we are one of them. Um, and, uh, you mentioned the next generation, 
uh, I did some research. I think it was like 36% of uh, millennials believe that uh, business is uh, the purpose of business is to do higher good. Um, and by 2025, 95% of the American workforce will be millennials. So that's something to think about. And that's something to give us some hopes for. Um, Malcolm, I know you're sitting over there. Um, how, how is this thing going to be resolved? Is this a, is this a consumer uh, uh, issue that I can take advantage of right now and understand what single-use plastic is? I can understand how to recycle. Or is this most importantly a political and a business issue? It's, it, it's both. It, it, it's both. And I think the demands have to come from the next generation, as Craig said. Um, the policies need to be changed. And we've seen that um, successfully with plastics um, and single-use plastics around the world. And the uptake has been huge um, globally. You know, you, you have airlines like Air New Zealand that have gone, you know, mostly plastic free now and and they've made the change and the consumer wants it you know i'm 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 more willing to fly on an airline that's got rid of its single-use plastic today than i ever was before um and and the world is waking up and 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 demanding that change for us it's really about limiting that downside it's it's limiting the effect that we have and hopefully before it's too late. Um, There's an interesting thing that it's the poor that are going to suffer from climate change. It's the, it's yeah. the, it's it, it, it. There's going to be more disease. There's going to be lack of water. It's, it's the poorer countries that are really going to suffer. Um, and if you're in a position of privilege, you shouldn't be arguing against or trying to find out reasons for keeping your privilege. You need to be joining the, joining the fight. And, and getting on board. And I, I think that's 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 the message that we would like to share with our audience when they watch the film. Uh, Craig, you, you were mentioning earlier uh, about the pollution uh, affecting the crops uh, in China, I believe it was. Uh, you know, how we got in touch with you both actually is a funny story. Um, it was this summer, I was uh, on, my, on my way to Bali actually. It's my first trip really to Southeast Asia. And I was on a flight from Hong Kong and I struck up a conversation. I was talking about what we do. And I just did a recent interview with Akon, who has brought uh, light and energy to over 100 million Africans in Sub-Saharan Africa. And I was sharing this with this you know, with this gentleman next to me on the plane. He said, have you heard of Craig Leeson? And I was, I was like, oh, no, I have not. Like, uh, He's like, oh, my gosh, you guys see this film, you know, The Plastic Ocean. It's incredible. I'll get you in touch with him. Um, and to go off your point uh, with with pollution uh, going into crops, I was in Bali and I'm with a family of 30. Right. I'm at their homestay. They're cooking food for us. They're giving us, you know, the, the cousin is giving me a massage. The, the sister is making us food and providing us drinks. Um, and I, 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 I'm talking to K2 and K2 is a man who owns the place. And I, I was talking. He, he was saying, man, K2, how, how is this food so good, man? Like, how do you guys do this? They have a rice paddy, they have animals, that's it. Why is this so good? He said, well, uh, you know, we don't scare our animals. We don't treat them bad, you know, because why is, why is that important? Well, it puts stress in the animals and that stress goes into the food and then we eat the food and then we get stressful. So when we're thinking about plastic pollution and plastic in the animals what type of a ripple effect does that have when we don't think about what we're throwing away and going into the oceans yeah well look what we don't understand um because we don't teach history very well anymore at at school um and we're, we're not teaching science like we should but we are pretty much what we eat and unfortunately today Uh, we eat a lot of animal products that have been exposed to plastic. So if you eat fish, uh, you are eating around 12,000 pieces of plastic every year. And that's just the plastic. That's not even the toxins that attach to the plastic when they reach the ocean. Uh, And that's the bad stuff. And that stuff, uh, once fish swallow the plastic pieces, releases into the tissue of the fish and bioaccumulates. So if you were eating top-tier, top-food chain predators like uh, tuna and marlin and swordfish and shark, then you are consuming these toxins. And 
the problem we have with that is that we're also consuming plastic um, from the beverages that we're drinking and from the food and cheese that is wrapped or vacuum sealed in plastic products. These plastics, as we show on a plastic ocean, leach into the food uh, very quickly and very easily. Um, changes of temperature cause it to happen more quickly, but that doesn't need to be the case. Uh, it will leach naturally. And so we're consuming these plastic products uh, constantly. Uh, we're consuming the, the chemical compounds naturally every day uh, as we, we, we eat and uh, consume foods from the supermarket. And, you know, there's, there's, we, we, we quote a study in the film that was done in 2003 by the Center for Disease Control in America, which found that 92.7% of every American tested, uh, their blood and urine showed plastic chemicals. Um, but what was frightening about that statistic was that in people the ages or kids the ages of 6 to 11, they were seeing twice the amount of plastic chemicals. And you wonder how this is possible because children are, you know, they're, they're, they're born, they're not exposed to plastic as, for as, as long a period of time as adults are. But what they found was happening was that um, as males, we can't detox a lot of these chemicals, these heavy metals. They stay within us. We're ultimately the ultimate filters. But women can. And when they give birth to a child and they breastfeed the child, their body naturally downloads all of these chemicals uh, based on a nutritional need, whether it's good or bad, to the children. And then, of course, we're wrapping children in plastic nappies. We're sticking uh, milk into a plastic bottle and putting that in their mouth with a plastic nipple. We stick a plastic dummy in their mouth and give them plastic toys to play with. And so kids are getting, getting exposed to these plastic compounds very quickly at a very young age. Now, that research was done in 2003, um, which is 16 years ago. In the last 10 years, we've produced more plastic than the entire century before that. So we know that um, uh, that that figure is going to be a lot higher today than it's ever been. And in fact, here in, uh, I'm on the border here with Italy and Austria, and Austria released a study just a few months ago which showed of uh, people that they studied the stools from, from eight different countries within Europe, they found microplastics in every single sample. So every single person they studied had plastics within their system. Um, so we now know that it is uh, it is within us and we're eating it. It's in the air. Microfibers now are in the air. It's in 80% of tap water studied globally. It's in the bottled water we drink um, and it's in the food that we eat. We can't escape it. So these, back to your question, these are the sorts of effects that we didn't realise we would have back in the 40s, 50s and 60s when we started mass producing this product, but which we need now to understand going forward with any products that we start to produce. We need to study them very carefully before we release them uh, for common use. Oh, that's uh, very frightening. Uh, you know, I, I didn't read a, someone who is in the circular economy and recycles plastic and he said, well, plastic can float. Well, that's not really the case anymore as we found plastic. No, no. Yeah. 70% of plastic actually sinks. That's not true at all. 70% um, yeah. of plastic sinks, which is why we can never clean it up. Um, the ocean cleanup is a noble idea, uh, but it will not solve the problem. Uh, it won't even touch the tip of the iceberg. We need to, to stop these problems at source. And in the terms of uh, single-use plastic, that means we've got to control the solid waste before it reaches uh, the lakes and the rivers that are delivery systems to the oceans so plastic ocean that's the last documentary uh we're here today at least i thought we were here today we haven't really touched on it at all it's the last glaciers um uh, malcolm what's what's this experience been like what have you learned um and, and let's give our audience some in-depth uh, 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 uh visions of what it was like to, to climb these mountains it's been probably one of the most important journeys that I've undertaken in my life. And it's with Craig and myself have been pushing um, ourselves both mentally and, um, and physically um, over the last three years trying to make this documentary. Um, there's a story that Craig tells better than I do um, that kind of demonstrates the hardship that we had to go through as filmmakers to get to get one of the shots. Um, 
and we, I mean, Craig, as he said earlier on this on 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 this uh, interview, is is an oceans guy, and he is very scared of heights. Um, and so taking him into the mountains and sharing my passion um, for climbing and flying, um, that dynamic between us has been quite interesting. Um, and we've we've really tested that. Um, there's there's moments when when I've been extremely worried about coming back off the expedition, and and there's been quite a good, you know, an extremely strong bond that's that's formed between the two of us because of the situations that we put ourselves into, um, and that's that's just to get the shots. Um, that's going into the high mountains. That's climbing. That's that's testing our limits. That's overcoming our fears, um, and and every single stop as a filmmaker has been tested in this last three years, I think. Um, would you agree, Craig? Uh, yeah, I, what, yeah, what, what's an absolute truth of that is that Malcolm loves scaring the hell out of me <laughs> and he's, very, he's very good at it. Very good. Yeah. Um, and, uh, he's done that very successfully and, uh, I can't wait to take him surfing in big reef waves in, in Indonesia. <laughs> oh, uh, and uh, and and uh, sharing the same experience with him, but um, Malcolm's absolutely right, and, and it has been very testing and, and challenging mentally and physically, particularly for me because I am, you know, I have this fear of heights, and Malcolm's put me in some pretty compromising positions, you know, on on ridge walks that are, you know, just feet wide with with you know thousands of feet either side and you're supposed to walk along these things and they're just made of snow and 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 you know. Um, flying off the tops of peaks, being the first people to successfully fly off uh, a peak in Peru. Um, <laughs> it, it's tough. But what's extremely tough and what people don't see behind the scenes is actually the work that everyone else is doing as well, and that is to get the equipment into these extreme and hostile environments and carrying up, you know, 80, 90, 100 kilograms of, of cinematic equipment uh, to get brilliant shots where you'll, you've got to lug these cameras that don't perform very well in cold weather. Um, you've got to keep the batteries warm so that they don't fail. You've got to make sure these systems are going and get the shots at the same time and do the science uh, is incredibly difficult. So it's not just us, it's the logistics um, that our team have had to go through to enable us to get into these environments and also get the crews uh, with us. And, you know, we've got... Uh, camera guys, uh, cinematographers behind us, like Cody Tuttle, who uh, is an amazing mountain man in his own right, an amazing paraglider. Um, and he's doing, you know, a lot of the grunt work because he's carrying the cameras, he's setting them up in the cold, and he's flying a paraglider off the mountain following us, filming us as we're filming the glaciers. So there's a lot of teamwork that goes on with this, and a lot of the hard work is actually just uh, getting the logistics right to get uh, these cameras and people into the, the right environments to get the shots. Malcolm, man, why, why are you scaring my guy Craig like that? <laughs> Good question. Uh, yeah. You'll, you'll see when you watch the documentary. Uh, actually, it's a, it, it, it's a, it, that's a really good question. Um, when we did, when we, when, when, when we decided to do this film about climate change, we decided out of what we thought was a need, um, but in order to engage the audience, we didn't want to just create another climate change movie full of fact. We wanted to engage a new audience, a wider audience. We wanted them to come on the journey with us, share the adventure. Um, we wanted to experience climate change ourselves firsthand. And the way to do that is to, to climb a mountain, to go see the glaciers and get out there and prove our point ourselves to our audience um, while, while, while putting ourselves in the field at risk um, and, and, and through the elements. Um, one of the ways we want to finish off the production is um, last year, Craig and I both live in Hong Kong, and uh, we got hit by a huge Category 5 storm. My kids were scared, shitless. They were, you know, they, they were frightened for their lives in their own home, and the city was destroyed. Um, and and for us to demonstrate that, to show the fear, to show the destruction, we're going to go have to film that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and really being on the front line and, and, and showing people firsthand the facts and, 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 and what it actually means to humanity.
So is the intent to, to scare people about climate change? Is it to educate them? What's the goal in terms of, of this, uh, this project? In, in, inspire them to, to change. I mean, it, look, it, it is scary. You can't go away from the fact that it's scary, that there's some real dangers, that these are the consequences. Um, this is not a, this is not sugarcoating the problem, but there's hope. As, as Craig said, we're optimistic. You know, people have really, we've seen a wave of change with, with single use plastics and, and we, we hope to inspire young people to do the same about climate change and, 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 and driving, you know, their politicians to make the changes that are necessary in, the, in their respective countries. And, and Craig, you were touching on a good point about uh, getting out of your element, getting out of your comfort zone. Um, and I'm just going to relate that to just being in a new environment and how that changes people's perspectives. I know my, for one, I mentioned Bali earlier, definitely changed my perspective on how to treat people there, what they think about and how positive they are in the situations that they're given. Um, you know, how important is it, uh, or I guess... Uh, it is important to, for people to travel and get experience different cultures. There's no doubt about it. Um, how has you know new cultural experiences really shaped you? And, and is there is there a moment in time when you know at a, at a young age when you went to a new place, experienced something, and it you know changed your mindset for the rest of your life? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, because it is important. You can't be empathetic and, and the world needs more empathy. I mean, believe me, the, the, the issues that we're seeing uh, with immigration in places like the United States and even Australia um, is a result of people not understanding what it means uh, to live in another country or another culture. And you only get that by being exposed to it and uh, by immersing yourself in other countries and other cultures. And the first time that happened to me actually was uh, way back in 1992, I actually travelled through China uh, for the first time. Um, fresh out of Australia, I was a news anchor for ABC Television in Australia. Um, I travelled the country extensively covering all sorts of political and industrial issues. Um, and it was time to go and see the rest of the world. And uh, I was given an opportunity to travel with someone who knew China very well. And we travelled around the entire country uh, for a month. And I mean, I was going into places where they'd never seen uh, people like me before and uh, there's no concept of personal space. So people were coming up and they'd never seen someone with hair on their arms before. And, you know, they come up and pull the hair on your arm and, and touch the hair on your head because it's a different colour and, and want to engage with you because they're as curious about you as, as we were, you know, about the environment that we were in. And it makes you realize, uh, particularly when you go and stay with these people and get invited back to their uh, house to eat dinner with them and talk to them about their, their beliefs, their, their desires, that we all share common ground. We all want to uh, have and raise families in, in clean environments that allow each and every one of us opportunities to develop uh, who we are to the best of our ability. And it doesn't matter if you're Chinese or Indonesian or Australian or American. Um, these are all common hopes and goals that we all have. And it just so happens that we've grown up in different environments where these are either allowed or not allowed because of the regulatory systems or the political systems that we live in. Um, and we need more tolerance. So for me, it was definitely traveling through China for the first time. And, and uh, you know, there's very few countries that I haven't traveled to now. And every time I go to a country for the first time, the first thing I notice when I get off the plane is the smell. It's the very first sense that is awakened in me. And then uh, it is the understanding of the colors that are associated with the culture. So it becomes visual as a director. Um, and then immersing yourself in the culture and and uh, developing that empathy. And I think that's what's critical. And that's what is something that I try and bring across in the narrative uh, of the documentaries that I produce uh, is trying to help people come along on that journey. As Malcolm said, we're doing the same sort of format with The Last Glaciers. We want people to come along on the journey and be able to experience what we're experiencing and seeing what it's like to be someone in a village in Nepal that is forced to give up their house and give up their crops uh, and in some cases, their animals are moved because you don't have water anymore because those glaciers don't exist. That water doesn't fall through the river that you uh, relied on for hydration, for cropping, for your livelihood. Uh, and for people to understand that, they need to be able to live that. 
And Malcolm, uh, Craig just mentioned, you know, people need tolerance. They need empathy. Uh, but what does is, what is the last glaciers need? You know, what, what do you need from us? What do you need from investors? What do you need from people listening and watching to this right now? We, we need to, to share the message. Um, we need people to buy into the idea. We need people to understand the problem. We need people to understand the, 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 the situation. Um, I, I think one of the most powerful things about a plastic ocean was, um, and I'm a father, I have, I have three, three kids. When your child watches a plastic ocean and comes back to, to, to me as, as someone who operates businesses that, that have used single use plastics before. And they say, daddy, I saw this film about plastic. Should you not be doing something? Everyone wants to be a hero to their, to their kids. Um, and I, I just, you know, it's, it's about driving awareness the, the, and, 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 and getting people to, to, to sort of rally now, you know, it's, it's, it's almost too late. To, to stop a lot of the damage um, and, and, and we need to just get moving. Yeah, but we want people to share the, the message with the film um, and, you know, these films uh, cost a lot of money to make and so uh, financial support, moral support, um, all any kind of support actually that helps get that message out there, as Malcolm said, is uh, not only uh, needed but very, very welcome. And, uh you know, one of the messages I give a lot of people uh, in the talks that I do about documentary filmmaking is that documentary filmmakers need support of all kinds, particularly financial, because it costs a lot of money to get these products uh, to broadcasters. And, you know, most documentaries never see the light of day. Um, most of them don't return a profit. Um, and all of the good ones uh, continue uh, on their, their journey because their message is so powerful and so important. And so for them to get to air and to be seen by the millions of people that need to see them, uh, they need critical support. And that's, that's business, corporate support, financial support, all the way through to simply sharing the message and taking your family along to watch the film. Absolutely. And, and so anyone listening out there, you know, th these things are important. Uh, you, you know, you can either be a follower or a leader in this space, and that's one way to do it. Um, all right, gentlemen, uh, I'm just going to throw out some words, rally, inspire, empathy, responsibility, and understanding. Those are some of the, the words and terms you've been mentioning throughout this entire podcast. Um, so Craig, we'll start with you. What would you say your definition of a real leader is? To me, a real leader is a change maker. It's somebody who uh, quite often is forced to go against the stream. Um, it's somebody who doesn't listen uh, to lobby groups uh, or to vested interests, but listens to the collective needs of everybody uh, and is able to make decisions. And, and my godfather, who was a very successful businessman, always said to me, whatever you do, make a decision. He said, good or bad, people will respect you for at least making a decision. So I believe it is somebody who is proactive. And the problem we've got with many of our leaders these days uh, is that they're reactive. And they react to lobbying and they react uh, to minority, vocal minorities, and they're not showing true leadership. And true leadership is being able to weigh uh, the pros and cons of an issue uh, of needs and wants and being able to make a decision that uh, benefits the majority of people and most importantly considers the needs of future generations. Yeah, I like that a lot. Be proactive in this space. That's uh, a leader in itself. Uh, Malcolm, what about yourself? What, what would you say def your definition of a real leader is? Well, Craig's answer was pretty, uh, pretty in-depth. Um, I think I'll use a more simple um, uh, example. I, there's, there's always this, there's, there was this diagram that I saw about um, um, a leader who thought he was a leader and a leader who his team thought was a leader. And it was a description of a uh, of a peak and a leader is not someone who stands on the summit first a leader is someone who is attached to his team with a rope who helps get the whole team up to the summit um, and that's a really simple way to depict what a true leader really should do 
I like that empowering others, a uh, big part of uh, leadership and, and uh, you know, cultivating that, that, that common mission. Um, well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time uh, coming on the show, especially coming from uh, Italy and France, halfway around the world. Uh, amazing that we can do this in 2019. Uh, but before we, we end the, the show, we always like to ask our guests, where can people find more information uh, about this? And Malcolm, I'll, I'll ask you that. Yeah, so we're, uh, we're very active on, on social media. We've got a website, uh, lastglaciers.com. Um, there's a newsletter that you can sign up to. Um, follow our Instagram account uh, at Last Glaciers um, on Instagram. We've got a Facebook as well. Um, so please like sign up to our newsletter, follow us on Instagram, help support with comments and likes um, and, and, and share posts that, that, that you're interested in and, and, and you want to engage with. Mm. And it is the Last Glaciers. The Last with an S. And yeah. for the for the last glaciers, Craig, any last words from you? Uh, well, look, thanks for having us uh, on your show because, um, as we mentioned, you know, it's important to get the message across. And um, look, I, I like to tell is is that uh, I, with for the, with single use plastics, for example, I'm not anti plastic. I use plastic. My computer that allows me to talk to you has plastic, and my cameras have plastic in it. Um, in order to film the last glaciers, we've had to fly on airlines. You know, we've had to drive uh, fossil fuel driven cars uh, to get to these places. We are as much of the problem as everyone else is, um, which is why we want to start the debate and create awareness so we can drive technologies so that we can start to develop systems where we don't need to rely on these problems. Um, so I'm not preaching um, as somebody who is holier than thou. And in fact, the film is a journey that Malcolm and I go on as people who have these problems and we're looking for solutions. So that's very important, uh, a very important message we wish to get across in the film. Well, I think it's really important. We have people like yourselves doing these things. It's great. Uh, and we're going to keep supporting that as long as we can, uh, especially in this upcoming edition. Uh, that'll be on newsstands October 22nd through uh, January 23rd. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. Folks, thanks again for taking your time. Whether you're listening on the audio or on Facebook, thanks for coming to the Realtors Podcast today. And don't forget, uh, leadership. You can always be proactive and be attached to the team. Uh, lastly, folks, uh, we want you all to go out there and, and always, uh, like we say, every single podcast, always keep it real. Gentlemen, thanks for your time. Thank you. All right, folks. And if you made it this far, we appreciate you for hanging on. I know that was a, a longer than anticipated episode, uh, but a lot to cover there. And what an inspiring story and uh, really crazy. You know, part of this job is we just get put in touch with so many different unique individuals. And the way it happens is very unconventional. As I mentioned on the podcast, I, I sat on the airplane and happened to sit next to somebody who knew Craig uh, and Malcolm. So appreciate you, Simon, if you're listening to this. Thank you, my man. And as promised, the following is a story from the most recent Re-Leaders Winter Edition under the Climate Action section. Here we go. Climate Action, how business and leaders are impacting the planet. Climate Action, Life Below Water and Life on Land. Some of the SDG goals titled A Journey to the Last Glaciers. A new environmental feature film aims to raise awareness of climate change through an extreme journey to where climate change is most visible, the mountains and polar ice caps. The team investigates the effects global warming is having as the glaciers melt at unprecedented rates around the planet. The 2017 cinematic feature film, A Plastic Ocean, fundamentally changed the way humanity perceived single-use plastic products, casting light on the issue of human addiction to single-use plastic and the detrimental effects that this has had on the environment and human health. Screened in over 70 countries and translated in more than 20 languages, A Plastic Ocean was one of the most awarded environmental documentaries in 2017. Now, the director of A Plastic Ocean, Craig Leeson, Plastic Ocean's Foundation Board members Malcolm Wood and Matt Reed, an experienced global film studio executive and producer William Pfeiffer, have teamed up for a new environmental feature film called The Last Glaciers. 
The film's producers aim to bring the same level of awareness to what might become humanity's biggest challenge yet, the climate crisis. Climate change change is an an increasingly relevant topic. And the production team is passionate about the health of our earth and oceans. They believe that seeing is believing and they are on a mission to share their experiences with an audience around the world. The collaboration hopes to expand public awareness and help people understand the signals in nature that indicate climate change. The film will take viewers on an extreme journey to the frozen extremes of the world. Here, the team will investigate the effects global warming has on the planet through one of the Earth's disappearing environmental icons, glaciers. As the ice melts at an unprecedented rate worldwide, scientists are becoming increasingly frustrated that hard facts and data are being largely ignored by international governments. Their message is starting to turn to panic. If we don't address global warming now, we won't survive the subsequent climatic changes that may occur. By clarifying the multiple contradicting messages that have been presented to the public, the documentary removes doubt that climate change is real and confirms that it has become our single biggest threat to extinction. And there it is, the climate action story of our 2019 winter edition. Folks, if you like that story and you want to read more, want to hear more leaders like Craig and Malcolm, go to real-leaders.com slash Subscribe and use code PODCAST25 at checkout to receive 25% off your Real Leader subscription. That's going to wrap it up for this episode with Craig Lisa and Malcolm Wood. We appreciate your time here on the Real Leaders Podcast. And always, folks, keep it real.